Help people understand what exactly energy poverty means. So I think what we agree on is that it's a challenge. What we don't agree on is how to define it. And the reason why it's so complex is because it has different definitions here in the U.S., but it also has different definitions across the world. And that's perhaps what we need to agree on. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 111, that's 111 for those of you scoring at home. Happening right now in the Cougs Energizing the Energy Transition Series rolls along part five with Miss Aparajita Dada, a PhD student in political science at the University of Houston, is our latest guest on the program. And of course, Miss Dada from India gives us some tremendous insight into what it's like being from a city that has 28 million people. Yes, that's right, 28 million people. What it meant for her coming from a little bit different socioeconomic status, what kind of perspective that gave her, and what happened here in Houston that caused her to change course educationally. It's a tremendous story, and Miss Dada has some absolutely phenomenal things ahead of her, much like everybody else that we've spoken to as a part of this series. But before we get to her episode today, let's hear from our CEO and co-founder, Mr. Mike Niemer, telling you what it is we do here at eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know going green is important to your business and your ESG rating. Besides offering PPAs and VPPAs, through our network of clean energy professionals, we can also offer renewable natural gas or let us help you lower your carbon footprint with responsibly sourced gas from a leading global energy provider. Maybe you need green energy credits, whether it's unbundled RECs or RSG certificates. Your path to net zero and decarbonization is one step closer with the renewable. For more assistance, please call us at 1-866-E-Renew1. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Mike Niemer. You can find out more about the company over at eRenewable.com. Give us a follow on our LinkedIn page, eRenewable and the Green Insider Podcast, so that you too can be a member and featured on our Follower Friday series. We've got uh, another great show planned for you this Friday. Nathan Sprague, Director of Origination from Compute North. They're also a recent member of the North American Energy Markets Association. So we're going to talk to him a little bit about what they do over at Compute North, blockchain, ladies and gentlemen, and what he's looking forward to at the NEMA conference coming up next week. All right, let's get right down to today's episode, part five of the University of Houston's collaboration with the Green Insider, Coogs Energizing the Energy Transition. Here is from New Delhi, India, Miss Aparajata Dada. I'm Aparajata Dada, and the funniest pronunciation that I've gotten for my name, it's a story that I like to tell, is asparagus. I was teaching in a room full of about 70 people, so I didn't know how to react. But as long as you're not calling me asparagus, I will take other permutations. Noted. I grew up in New Delhi, in India. It's a city that's about four times as populous as Houston. Then I got my undergrad in India as well. But I went to a smaller town at the foothills of the Himalayas. And that was beautiful. I got my undergrad in computer science and engineering. And then I moved to the U.S. for a master's in computer science, but decided to pivot. That's how I got to Houston and U of H, and six years later, I'm here. I'm a third-year PhD student in the political science department, and I'm a research scholar here at UH Energy. 
So it's not every day that we hear somebody say that they came from a town, and you know, town's putting it mildly, that's four times as populous as the city of Houston. What in the heck is it like living in a city with 28 million people? A lot of people in your face when you're moving out and about in the city. Um, I did, but I think that my biggest takeaway growing up there, and perhaps what the a most shocking transition was when I moved here, was that you see two types of people coexist, uh, the privileged, and at the same time, you see people who are deprived of opportunities. That's what got me interested in problems of energy access, energy poverty, concept that energy should be basic human right. I've seen people struggle to have one bulb lit up in their homes. I had a very privileged upbringing, so, um, but I was always aware of all of this because my father is a mechanical engineer. He's designed a lot of the uh, thermal power plants that we see in India. And uh, my mother is a political scientist. So what I do today is a good mix of what they did for their careers. I have, I have them to thank for it. So I, was, I grew up very aware of these um, injustices and um, I wanted to do something about it. So I've moved, I've moved about 8,000 miles away, but hopefully at some point I will be able to give, give back in some ways. What gave you that perspective, again, coming from the fact that you did have parents that were very well educated and, mm -hmm. and, and lived in a different socioeconomic status in India, how were you still able to have that kind of perspective for the folks that didn't have that same upbringing that you did? Uh, I think most of it came from my father. So when we would discuss what he, you know, when he would try to explain his job to me, he would try to explain how important electricity is. Uh, and one of the first things that he taught me was how important it is to save electricity. You just turn off the light when you're not in a room, right? But as a child, you question that. Why? Why is it important to not be wasteful? And I think that's where the perspective came from. But my biggest personal story about understanding how important energy is and how important access is. So we talk about how different socioeconomic groups here in the US will probably still have the ability to light a bulb in their homes, right? But we're probably not thinking about how affordable that energy is for them and what do they have to trade off to pay for their electricity bills. And going back to my personal story, it goes back to the winter storm. And I live in uptown Houston, so a fairly good part of the city. But I didn't have power through the storm. I had about four hours of power on Tuesday morning of yeah. the storm. Yeah, I, yeah. I remember the details because it was life-changing. And uh, so the whole week I didn't have power. And then I didn't have a functional home as a, because of plumbing issues or uh, infrastructure issues afterwards. I didn't have a functional home for six weeks. And that made me think that there are people in this city who've been through this through Harvey, then perhaps also through the tropical storm in 2019, um, Imelda, yeah. and then again through Winter Storm Uri. And a lot of these people depend on the government to provide these resources, right? And just to know that they're waiting for aid, that this is a generational problem, that made me think about what I want to do in my PhD, uh, what I want to build my career off of. That lent a lot of perspective. So how did that change maybe your career arc or what made it, did it put you in a different mindset as far as, okay, now I'm going to study this and this is what I'm, how did it change for versus what you were planning on doing to what you plan to do now? So it actually happened at a very uh, opportune moment, I think, because it was, I was right at the point in the degree program where I had to start thinking more deeply about what I want to study. What is that one research question that I want to answer as part of my thesis? 
uh, Dr. Krishnamurthy, who heads the energy initiative here, um, uh, he and I, we were going back and forth on what it should be. And I think, so one of the things that I've realized about him and what makes him a great mentor is that he lets you crystallize your own learnings. He shares his experiences, but he never tells you where to find the answers. He teaches you to ask better questions. So he was trying to make me think about the questions that I want to answer. And then the storm happened. And uh, I, w I was focusing on, you know, what should methane regulations look like? That was, that was supposed to be my initial focus for the PhD. And then this happens, and suddenly I... Which is I, cool and which all, Which is very but cool. <laughs> but it did not inspire me as that's, much that's as this it, does. That's it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you want to build a career and like what you do, then you need something that inspires you. So you went from methane regulations to energy poverty? Absolutely. Help people understand what exactly energy poverty means. So I think what we agree on is that it's a challenge. What we don't agree on is how to define it. And the reason why it's so complex is because it has different definitions here in the US, but it also has different definitions across the world. And that's perhaps what we need to agree on. One of the things that I've learned over the years is that you can probably have the best technological or economic solutions to the energy transition, but the complexities, and what we don't appreciate is how deep and broad the complexities are, they arise when you start dealing with people, when you start dealing with the societal issues. Uh, how do you get people to agree? And the basic definition for energy poverty here in the US perhaps is, what are you paying for your energy needs, yeah. right? But if I contrast that to a country like India, where I grew up, it would probably mean more in terms of access first, whether you even have access to energy, and then perhaps about how much you're paying for it. Having said that, there are still huge chunks of population, of the US population, that are deprived of access as well. I'm thinking of a lot of the tribes. I'm thinking of people who are on the grid, but it's just so hard for them to pay for their energy needs that they just cannot, you know, perhaps also support their basic heating and cooling needs. A lot of pictures that we saw through the pandemic, right? You see a family of perhaps six or seven people huddled in one room, people trying to take classes over the internet. And we don't realize that all of this is also tied to your ability to pay your electricity and utility bills. So I think understanding those definitions, and here's where I think the biggest opportunity is, right? We may fight over what sustainability should look like, but we, we can't fight over the fact, or at least we have some sort of agreement, whatever our political allegiances might be, we have some sort of agreement in terms of the fact that we all will need more energy. Um, and which is why perhaps it's important to think of energy as a human right. And we haven't done a good job of that so far. What is India's relationship with energy? Um, so if you look at the history, right, uh, we're a fairly young democracy, but we're the biggest democracy in terms of uh, the people, right? 1.3 billion people. So if you followed any of the IPCC controversy this whole week, uh, so this uh, report that came out on Monday, uh, it's being termed as, you know, path-breaking. It's being termed as this is what we need in terms of climate action. But the report was delayed for a very long time. And part of why it was delayed is because we didn't have agreement from world leaders, including leaders from India, in terms of what the language should be. And it goes back to how politicized energy is, right? Uh, so one of the things the report says is that we have to absolutely stop our reliance on coal if we have to meet our uh, 1.5 degrees Celsius targets. But when you talk about it in the context of a country like India, we rely so much on coal, and coal is cheaply available. It's perhaps not as good in terms of quality as, let's say, Australian coal is. 
but you have about 300 thermal power plants in the country. We're talking about 1.3 billion people who rely on these plants, right? And when you talk about energy transition, I, I feel like transition is a word that sounds like everything's going to be very smooth. It's going to be not, it wouldn't have any challenges. But we don't realize that it's not going to happen overnight. The transition would look different in different parts of the world. And countries like India cannot automatically switch away from fossil fuels like coal. And if you're thinking of doing that, you don't have magical solutions. And you will also need, how, how do you tell 1.3 billion people that I'm going to stall your economic progress because we need to switch away from coal? We don't realize that when you talk about fossil fuels, oil and gas, or energy, we're not just talking about electricity, but we're also talking about petrochemicals. We're talking about the clothes we wear. We're talking about medical supplies. The food and beverage industry, we just don't, we don't realize the depth of what a big role um, energy and energy products play in our lives. And I think that dialogue needs to be more equitable. There is historical responsibility that countries have, Western democracies, and we can't deprive. We can't deprive people of the opportunities to just develop, have, get where they want to in life. So that perhaps captures a little bit of India's relationship with energy and the scope of the challenge. Wow, you have such great ideas, just spitting facts left and right. I'm glad you switched from methane to energy poverty. <laughs> so, I'm glad too. I feel like the switch was, it, I've had to pivot a bunch of times, but yeah, from computer science to methane to this, yes, it's it's been fun. So what are some ideas? Look, I know you still have a couple of years left to graduate, but as of now, what are some ideas that you could implement to help energy poverty? One of this is right here. Uh, the reason I wanted to be a part of this, outside of Dr. Krishnamurthy asking me to do this, uh, was just to have a social science perspective. I think dialogue is very important. We're living in such a polarized society uh, where you know political beliefs uh, determine how you feel about energy. But we forget that the bottom line here is that we all depend on it, right? So it's important to understand that there is perhaps section of the society that has been consistently derived of equitable energy, affordable energy. This is also probably the same section that is, you know, facing the consequences of environmental injustices, climate injustices. So there is, there is an opportunity, there's an intersection of the three. Uh, we need to define these better. We need to hear from the people who are impacted and just understand that technology, yes, economics, yes, but a huge part of the energy transition is going to be the people. Uh, this is an opportunity for societal transformation, and we're doing such fantastic work here at the university. I think we need to have more voices. So this is perhaps where it begins. You said something, though, that, look, you can't just switch off fossil fuels. So how do we have that conversation you got 1.3 billion people who rely on fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make it right. We understand it, but guess what? We can't shut 1.3 billion people off because y'all need that. How do we have that conversation and we get bring people together to understand it's going to take both sides? I think if you look at the energy companies, especially a lot of the bigger players who are making commitments in terms of moving forward. And this could perhaps be that they realize that this is a license to operate issue for them. But we have commitments from there. I think what we need to realize is that there are multiple stakeholders here. It's not just energy companies, whether it be oil and gas, coal, or renewables. It's also people who are the end consumers, right? I think we forget this, that the reason why we are producing oil and gas or we're running thermal power plants is because there's a demand for the product. 
people forget that there's individual responsibility. And we forget that the people we are relying on to make these decisions are the government representatives that we're electing. So the, one, of, one of my favorite things to quote in terms of democracy is that it's messy. I learned it from one of my mentors, uh, John Hofmeister. Another thing about democracy is that the people who are voting, we're assuming that more than 50% of them are representative of what the whole population wants. And that's how democracy works. But to understand a lot of these challenges, to have that dialogue, I think we need to go back to the core concepts of how we get people to talk to each other. We get them to work together. It's not going to happen overnight, and it's going to look very different across different parts of the world. A good place to begin is universities, and I think which is why education institutes have a huge role to play in terms of how they can be a neutral body just trying to facilitate those discussions but also hold your government representatives accountable uh, we've had a lot of um, we've had we've had a lot of mudslinging but we don't have time for that any longer i think uh, we need to think of this in terms of yes it's a race against time but it's also a relay race and you have multiple players and you just have to get everyone to work together a, what does the energy transition mean to you? And B, what does it mean to India? Uh, you, obviously, you've touched on the, the coal aspect of, of, of India. But where is India at when it comes to renewable energy? Is there work being done? I mean, I know from talking to the folks from Nigeria, they're saying, look, we're nowhere near where we need to be. Everything's oil and gas. Where's India at on that? So the bad news is that it's a hugely populous country. So you have to, you, everything gets stalled because of that, right? You're, you're catering to a huge population. The good news is that we are situated geographically, we have the advantage of taking, you know, having, having solar generation at scale, having wind generation at scale, and the technology is getting cheaper. And what we need to realize is that the transition didn't happen overnight. Of course, it scaled up in other parts of the world and then got to the country, right? India is actually one of the few countries that up until now is on track, or at least I could, I could be wrong on this, but at least before the pandemic was on track in terms of meeting its Paris goals. But again, you need to keep revisiting those goals. Those goals cannot, they're not static. The commitment to scaling up renewables, that is part of where India is going. But uh, of course, we have to factor uh, in for, you know, everything that's happened as part of the pandemic. It's one of the worst hit countries in the world. So I think it'll slow down the pace for sure. But, um, but the conversation's being yeah, had. Exactly. Whereas, like I said, the one thing that Lotan and Uche pointed out was there's really not even any conversation being right. had in Nigeria, whereas at least you guys are at least looking at what needs to be done. That and the fact that it provides a huge economic opportunity, right? So it's a country that's also facing a lot of unemployment. And this, perhaps the energy transition, is one of the ways to get uh, gainful employment to a lot of people. Uh, it's also one of the ways in which you bridge the rural-urban divide. You make sure that people have the ability to gain access to the grid. I, um, I'm very proud of where we're going, and part of it is also because of what I've seen. You know, I've seen my father contribute to this, and I hope we continue on this journey. Again, going back to something I said earlier, we're a young democracy, but uh, I feel like there are a lot of opportunities, and the conversations are being had. So we'll get there. We'll get there, but we just need to um, make sure that people can work together. So does that kind of dovetail into what does the energy transition mean to you? To me, uh, well, okay, so my plan after graduating is to stay in academia. And one of the reasons why 
I, when, I, when I first started out with a PhD, that wasn't my plan. But I've had some fantastic mentors and they've changed how I think about energy. They've changed how I think about the energy transition. All of us recognize that there's also a representation challenge here, right? You don't see women or people of color. I've had a seat at the table and they've willingly given me a seat at the table, made sure I have an opportunity. And I want to be able to do that for someone else. So I think the energy transition in terms of a personal opportunity is to just make sure that I can pass on the legacy. And in terms of seeing a bigger opportunity for us as a society, this is such an amazing moment where these conversations are being held. It's not just about climate justice. It's not just about environmental justice or energy justice. It's about rediscovering and reimagining a lot of what we've thought works in the society, but it hasn't really worked. It's about uplifting people. And we finally have those dialogues um, going on in perhaps at the federal level right now and it'll streaming down to local government. But it's just, it's, it's exciting. It's exciting in terms of where we're headed and we still have some time to get it right. So I, I don't think my struggles have been any different from another person of color or another woman of color. All of us have very similar stories. But to have a platform to share those stories, I think that's important. The University of Houston has provided me with that. What the university has also provided me with is fantastic role models. And I think you need that. You need role models and you need mentors who are invested in you. People who just who will make sure that your voice is heard and uh, you have the opportunity to explore career paths the way you want to. I think that has, every time that I've had a setback, I've also had someone pull me up, and that's important. So, which is, which is perhaps why I've stayed here for so long. Uh, when, you, when you find a good mentor, you stick with them. I think in terms of inspiration, I think every person who has persevered through their career, who's overcome challenges, and you know, this is a good time to talk about this after what happened yesterday with KBJ's nomination to the Supreme Court. It is phenomenal just to watch her, right? And I see a lot of why this is so historic is because a lot of us identify with that journey. And uh, like I said, we are at a time when a lot of things around us are changing, complete societal transformation. And we have, uh, we have an opportunity to set things right. You're affecting the energy transition now. How are you going to continue to affect the energy transition? Through education. Uh, and I think that's an important part of it. Uh, universities allow you to, um, you know, just have a free space to uh, encourage ideas, encourage innovation, encourage conversations like this. It's a safe space. You don't have to worry about I'm, I'm trying to contrast this with, let's say, if I had a job somewhere else where I was not a student, right? You'd have to, th you'd have to think about what opinions you're, you're communicating, but you don't have to do that at a university. Someone lets you explore your ideas the way you want to. Someone lets you be the person you are. And I hope to do that. So I hope that would be my contribution to the energy transition. And perhaps to just advance the understanding that this is not, you know, it's, it's a multidimensional challenge and transitions are slow. But they do happen, and if we get it right, then um, we can make an impact. Do you ever see yourself going back to India? Never say never. But uh, as of now, I would like to teach here. If I have the opportunity at the University of Houston would be my perfect, you know, my ideal case scenario. I'm not close to the opportunity of going back to India. I, my family's still there. So we'll see how life turns out. What has made U of H so special for you? Personally, I think just Getting here to the city, and my, my, I wasn't planning on staying here for so long. My plan was to get my first master's at the Bar College of Business and then join the workforce, join the industry. One of my classes there 
that made me think about policy making. It opened the world of policy making to me, and I felt like I don't understand any of it, which is when I decided that perhaps this is a good place to start thinking about these challenges. So then I got my next master's at the Hobby School uh, of Public Policy here at U of H. And now I'm at the Political Science Department with the PhD. Uh, it's been phenomenal. It's been a long journey, but it's been phenomenal. It's been fun. Something that I've said through um, today's conversation, I have had such good mentors that I never wanted to, wanted to leave. Especially here at UH Energy, I have colleagues who have supported me, treated me as an equal and just having that opportunity. And in terms of being in Houston, Houston's been nice to me, it's been kind to me, so I, I, I plan to be here for as long as the city plans to keep me. Outside of that six weeks at uh, your house, you know. Oh, that was, that was <laughs> terrifying, and yes, I wanted to leave. Don't worry, a lot of people did. Yeah, uh, that, yeah Yuri was, was something else. Uh, it was, I was without power for those four weeks, too, so, or excuse me, four days. Get chatty with this, last thing. You've already told us why you entered the competition, and, and trust me, uh, Afri and I are certainly glad that you did. Why should you win? So if you look at the translation of my name, or my name, it originates in Sanskrit, and it means invincible. So winning's always important, uh, but no. Outside of that, um, I think I want to bring a social science perspective to this conversation. I want to add to um, the dialogue that's already happening in the city. Uh, we're changing things. Houston has the ability to do that, and uh, you know, the University of Houston is a huge part of that. And because I want to bring that new perspective, winning would be important. Thank you for that, Miss Dada. You can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and over on our website, eRenewable.com. And if you listen to us over on Apple Podcasts, and we know that a lot of you do, leave us a five-star rating. Why? Because we promise you learn more about renewable energy and the energy transition than you knew about it before you stopped by. Don't forget, we've got part two of our Eight Rivers series coming up with Mr. Damian Beauchamp. He is the president and chief development officer of Eight Rivers. We had a tremendous part one of our series with Eight Rivers when we spoke to Mr. Bill. Brown, Damien Beauchamp does not disappoint either talking all things carbon capture and what they are doing in that space. You definitely do not want to miss that. And then, of course, we'll have part six of the U of H series. And, of course, as we alluded to already, the Follower Friday. So do not miss that. And, of course, next week we'll be at the NEMA conference and we will wrap up the part seven and eight from the U of H series with a live event going down the last week of April. We'll have more information on that and how you can attend if you're so inclined. Shout out as always, to the entire eRenewable team and Mike, Roger, Al, all the guests, all the audience. Without you, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. Mm-hmm.